Australia has been devastated by a series of natural disasters recently. The 2009 Black Saturday fires in Victoria, the 2010 floods in Queensland and the 2013 bushfires in New South Wales stand as stark reminders. The human impact of natural disasters varies significantly across different social groups. I'm speaking with Dr Scott McKinnon, research fellow on an Australian Research Council funded project that is investigating the experiences of LGBTI communities in natural disasters. Dr Scott McKinnon, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Dallas. When there's a natural disaster, what's the typical government and community response? The overarching theme for uh, natural disaster response is that the first step is uh, that our safety and security is our own responsibility. So emergency services are stepping in at that point at which we can no longer care for ourselves. Uh, beyond that, it varies from place to place, uh, but emergency services in that initial impact phase will step in to provide certain areas of support and care in, in those moments, um, and then providing support and care in terms of perhaps financial support, clothing, food, those kind of forms of support. Those will often be provided by charity, often faith-based organisations that have been outsourced uh, to by government to provide those, those areas of care. So there will be a range of kind of systems that kick in to care for people through that longer, longer term effects of the disaster. So at the time of the initial impact of a natural disaster, you talk about the invisible disaster the accidental or deliberate exclusion of LGBT communities from the official recovery process. So how are the needs of these communities different to other social groups? I think the first thing to think about here is that disasters are, are not events that happen in nature. Natural disasters are events that happen in society. Um, so if a massive storm happens out at sea, that's not a natural disaster, that's just a weather event. It's only when that disaster hits land that, and, and hits a populated area that it has the potential of becoming a natural disaster. So what that means is we need to think about disasters in terms of social concepts and the ways in which society operates that might have consequences for how people will experience a disaster. So issues like gender or race or socioeconomic status, age, ability, these all matter in terms of how vulnerable people will be to a disaster and how resilient they'll be in kind of recovering from it. In terms of LGBTI people, what that means is that the social marginality experienced by LGBTI populations in day-to-day -day life, the risk of discrimination and prejudice that a lot of LGBTI people experience, that doesn't get set aside for the for the time of the disaster. It, it plays out through the disaster. And in terms of the, you know, in the heightened emotions of a disaster and in, in the trauma that's being experienced in, in a disaster, it can actually be exacerbated in some ways. So an example in the kind of impact phase of how LGBTI people might be affected is in uh, an emergency evacuation shelter. So the space of the home can be really important to LGBTI people. It's a safe space uh, um, within certain boundaries where you're safe to kind of perform your identity as you see fit and you can kind of manage who comes and goes from that space. The disaster might remove that safe space and you kind of get thrown into a, a, a space without those kind of the four walls that you can protect yourself through. 
Um, and so an emergency evacuation shelter, you might end up in a space like that, which might be a school gymnasium or a shopping centre or something like that, which is just lots of mattresses on the floor and in which you don't have any kind of ability to manage how out you are, how you interact with people that you might otherwise choose not to interact with. Um, Could you give me an example of that, an example maybe from here or around the world? Yeah, for example, uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, transgender people having a lot of trouble in going to emergency evacuation shelter and the the facilities are set up for men and for women and if your gender identity doesn't kind of comfortably fit within one of those binary kind of terms then using those facilities can be problematic and there was an example of a trans woman who was actually arrested for using the women's showers so she's lost her home she's needing to find this safe space but for the simple act of having a shower, she then found herself um, having to deal with the police and being in lockup for a few days. So it's this traumatic experience and you have this kind of added level of trauma beyond that. And there is data to suggest that some LGBTI people in some locations will choose to chance it at home rather than go to one of these spaces, um, rather than go to an emergency evacuation shelter. They see this, the, the risk of the disaster at home is less than the risk of, of the discrimination or the abuse or violence even that they might experience in, in a, a shelter. Um, so that's a, that's a kind of um, prime example, I think, of, of how in that immediate impact phase, LGBTI people are experiencing a level of risk that isn't necessarily affecting other people in the population. Right. I was wondering about the recovery response then, because the recovery to a natural disaster is complex. It obviously involves different government and non-government agencies, and it can extend for years after the initial event. So what are the challenges for LGBT communities? Um, what do they face during the recovery phase of the disaster? Yeah, there's a, there's a range of factors here, and one of them is that interaction with a range of different services. I think for, particularly for older um, LGBTI people, they've had a lot of experience with discrimination throughout their lives, and there's a, a reluctance to be out in interactions with a range of with government services with um, charity-based organizations there's that step of having to disclose your identity that is seen as quite risky by some people because they've experienced discrimination in the past um, so interacting with for example as i say a lot of these a lot of the services in the recovery phase are outsourced to faith-based organizations and there's an awareness that Many of those organisations are not accepting of LGBTI people. Uh, many of those organisations are exempt in terms of anti-discrimination legislation because they are faith-based organisations. So there's an awareness among some people that approaching an organisation like that is placing yourself at risk of discrimination. And that's not to suggest that these organisations aren't providing care, but it's just that level of fear, that fear of future discrimination that might prevent some people from approaching these organisations because of past experiences. Um, there are also issues around mental health problems. Uh, LGBTI populations are kind of overrepresented in terms of poor mental health outcomes. Um, and so for a population that's, that experiences um, mental health issues in that way, in terms of the uh, trauma that's experienced by through a natural disaster, again, that means that you are seeking out assistance um, for some kind of therapy or um, some kind of support through 
the post-disaster experience. Um, and again, that that's another example in which you're having to interact with a range of services to disclose your identity, and that becomes problematic for some people, I think. So, yeah, I was wondering, are there some collective implications then for natural disasters on LGBT communities? So how do these disasters affect not only the communities, but the places that um, LGBT communities live in? That can be around uh, issues like access to health services, uh, community support services. So uh, in a lot of areas there are a range of community groups that support LGBTI people in day-to-day -day life and those spaces from which they're operating are as at risk as any space is during the disaster. So if those spaces are lost, that means that the the services that people would normally turn to in a, in a moment of trauma are not there. Um, and so those spaces are lost. And there's an example of uh, the MCC Church in Brisbane. So MCC Church is a Christian church which is very welcoming to LGBTI people. It's a really important space for a lot of uh, LGBTI people of faith. And the, the space in Brisbane was very badly affected by the Brisbane floods in 2011. And so that space was lost for a period of time and had to move from space to space. Um, so this uh, location that people would turn to for support in a time like this suddenly isn't there. And so there's a... There's a um, level of risk around that sense of loss and that sense of being able to interact with a community at a t just the time when that community is really important to people. Um, it can even mean a, a commercial venue. The, the one gay bar in town is suddenly gone and so you've lost that opportunity to socialise with people like yourself. And um, you know, that can be really important to people in terms of support. Um, and and um, if people are experiencing homophobia or discrimination or marginalisation in their day-to-day -day lives, those spaces where you can be yourself and connect with people like yourself are really important. And so those spaces are at risk. Um, at the time of a disaster because of the consequence of the disaster. And then in the longer term, there are issues around the history of a community and um, connections to history of a community that can be really important. And so in Christchurch, after the um, 2011 earthquake there, one of the gay newspapers reported on various spaces that had been important to the history of that community that had been wiped out by the earthquake. And there's a sense in which a marginalised community that isn't necessarily going to see its history commemorated in official commemoration of how the city stood before the disaster finds itself further marginalised because its, its history is gone and it doesn't have a connection to its uh, the memory of its kind of long-term connection to that city um, and the ways in which the community developed within that city. Right. If a city is well resourced and has a sophisticated uh, disaster management plan, I guess what you're saying is this, that it doesn't mean that LGBT communities will not be at risk. No, no. And part of that is this fact that our, the first step is for us to care for ourselves. Um, and so we need to be sure that we have kind of disaster plans in place that we can um, support ourselves through a disaster. Um, and that is one way in which um, LGBTI communities can kind of display an interesting form of resilience in that if you are a marginalised group, you tend to 
there are networks developed by marginalized groups to support themselves through day-to-day -day life um, and kind of managing the, the level of discrimination that's a possibility or managing um, uh, exclusion from services um, that people might experience. And so there are forms of resilience within um, LGBTI communities where they kind of the, the social networks, the community networks, the families of choice that develop through um, LGBTI identity, they can kind of kick in to support people through a disaster. So that's one way in which uh, exclusion from, say, a government service can be kind of counterbalanced by the social networks that might be operating within a community. But there's also the fact that uh, there's only so much governments can do and that uh, forms of discrimination or prejudice that LGBTI people might experience aren't necessarily coming from the government or from top down. It might be coming from your neighbour or the business owner down the street or it, it, it's not just the responsibility of government to kind of support people through this um, and that people are going to still have to manage those kind of fears of discrimination that might might be coming from other directions. Right. So let's talk about then doing things better. Um, in what ways can emergency services, policy makers, aid agencies better respond to LGBTI populations? This is something that we're still very much just thinking about um, and uh, uh, we're still in the kind of early phase of the research that we're doing. So at the moment we're just kind of uh, raising issues around this and I think in one way that is important because visibility is important they're just raising the the fact that for lgbti people there are ex specific areas of vulnerability for lgbti people in a disaster so just being aware of that and just encouraging emergency service providers just to be aware that there might be people that you're dealing with um, who have specific needs and one of the issues that people report is a kind of assumption of heterosexuality um, or assumption of n not being transgender. Um, and, and so that step of needing to come out, of needing to raise that issue um, is problematic for people. So just not having that assumption, I think, is important. So in raising these issues, I think that's the first step in that. Um, there, there's research that's been done in other locations that is encouraging people to think kind of outside the box of just a, a binary gender model in the services that you provide um, and being aware that if you are dividing everything up into male and female that there are people that for that, whom that's going to be problematic um, and that if you are providing care to everybody who's affected by this disaster you need to think in terms other than uh, male, female or heterosexual and that it's not just heterosexual family groups that are being p impacted by this event um, and that the services that you provide, the care that you provide shouldn't just be designed for heterosexual family groups. If the services are only targeted in that way then there are people who aren't going to be assisted and for whom you're actually making things more difficult in a lot of ways. Are there any examples of countries or communities that are successfully accounting for minority groups in disaster recovery? Uh, as I say, uh, you know, we are still doing early research in this area. The only thing I would say in response to that is that issues like recognition of same-sex relationships in legislation can have really positive outcomes for people in disasters. So for example, in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, there was no recognition of same-sex relationships 
in that area of the US at that time. And what that meant was that people couldn't register as a couple for ongoing support, say emergency housing. Um, and so there was just simply no way within the system for a same-sex couple to be recognised within that system. So applying for emergency housing, people were finding that they couldn't register as a couple if they're a same-sex couple, and they had to. They ended up being kind of assigned housing in different locations. So the system simply couldn't um, accommodate people um, in, in that way. And so recognition of same-sex relationships is an area that kind of helps people in these circumstances. Um, so there are steps that can be taken kind of outside disasters or emergency management areas um, that can improve the resilience of LGBTI people in day-to-day -day life and that that might feed into the experiences of disasters for a lot of people. Dr. Scott McKinnon, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Dallas.